Hey everybody and welcome to the 13th episode of Vassals of Kingsgrave's Agatha Christie Reread. My name is Bina007 and I will be your host today and I'm so excited to welcome Hannah. Hey, it's Hannah Wingshot on Discord. That will be on the regular forums that don't exist anymore. Uh, the tape, well, <laughs> they kind of exist, it's just no one uses them. Um, <laughs> So we're here to discuss Agatha Christie's full-length novel, Peril at End House, originally published in 1932, which I believe, Hannah, is one of your favorites, or is it the favorite? It's up there, right? No, actually, that's Crooked House, but this Ah, was really good, too. This was one of the first ones I read of the Hercule Poirot one, so uh, I do really like this one a lot. This and Murder on the Orient are the first two Poirots that I read. Mm. Oh, well, you started you started well with those. This is, as Hannah said, a Hercule Poirot crime-solving mystery. And it was published in 1932. So at this point, Agatha Christie is 42 years old. She is out of her horrible first marriage. She is not, well, she's about to be in her second marriage to her lovely second husband. It's 1932. There's big stuff going on in the world. There's the stock market crash and ensuing Great Depression. You've got trouble brewing in China. And yet this is a very parochial novel set in a seaside town in the south of England. There are many sort of similarities to the price because we're reading these in orders you suddenly realize that there are many similarities to the prior novels such as murder at the vicarage and in particular the Sitterford house mystery you've got another seance you've got more quote-unquote colonials you've got another drug addict another coastal house and town a naval man commander challenger and you also have a mauser pistol that has been kept back from world war one like murder at the vicarage so there's a lot of continuity and similarity between the prior two novels and this one. So anyway, we have Hercule Poirot and Hastings on the South Coast. What is it? We're going to do this in two parts. We're going to do a spoiler-free one where we kind of discuss the outline of the novel, some of the characters, some of the issues with rereading it and adaptations. And then we're going to do a whole bit about the solution, which is very full of spoilers. So Hannah, if you can, spoiler-free, what is it about this novel that you like upon rereading it? Um... I I really admire, it's hard to say, like, spoiler free, but the way she builds the story in this one, and she she has similar ones, like you said, uh, where the outcome is very similar, but she, I don't know, it like, from almost 100 years later, looking back at it, it seems still so original, and it mm. seems still so, like, nobody does that, even though it's 100 years old, and even rereading it and knowing what happens, I'm, I was sitting there like, wow, you know, like, it's pretty incredible what she goes for in some of these novels. And it's hard for me to place at that particular time period, whether she really was pushing an envelope or she was just being like, keeping up with her contemporaries, because I'm not a huge fan of like 1930s. I mean, I think she was definitely pushing the envelope, right? Which is why she survived. Although also like an amazing brand name. So I suppose maybe it's self-perpetuating. But I think she was definitely, when you read contemporary reviews, people are impressed with her. And in particular, I mean, Orient Express was definitely pushing the envelope, but we'll get to that um, in a later yeah. episode. Um, so let's you get into it. character really well too, you know? Like you you do feel like you un- you know these people in just a few strokes of the pen. She I really agree. establishes parameters to them, histories to them fairly quickly. 
like knowing you and a few other friends that I know that are very like the Queen's English, you know, um, I I feel like it's a British trait, like to just be direct and to the point. And she does that in her writing, which is great, you know. It's very clear writing, isn't it? It's very easy. It's very crystal clear. And actually, I was shocked because most of my paperback, my new paperbacks of these novels are 300 pages long. And this one is only 240 pages. And yet I really feel right. I know the town. I know the characters. It's a very exactly. intricate plot. The thing I love about Kurt Vonnegut's writing, a lot of his novels are no more than 250 pages. But there's this whole deep dive that you go in on and it really blows your mind, you know. So mm. I think that's I, part of why I like Agatha's stuff is it's I, it's not really the dime store mystery novel they're they're a lot more complex but they're brief yeah i used to love that about brett brett easton ellis as well but i just bought his new book the shards and it's 600 pages long of very small type and i'm like what oh, happens oh boy. what happens um okay let's get into peril at end house so end house is a house at the end of a lane very beautiful overlooks the cliffs in cornwall so a stunning bit of um coast in england and the peril is financial peril. And if you remember that back in the early single digits of this reread, I was talking about how Agatha Christie was raised in such a beautiful house on the coast, but her father died when she was very young and the family were really in financial peril. And a lot of her teenage years were colored with trying to do anything to save the house from being taken away, including turning to writing fiction. So the hero of the book or the protagonist is uh, a young girl called Nick Buckley who absolutely loves the house and is really, you know, concerned that she's going to lose it. She has, in the words of her cousin, Charles Vise, who's her lawyer, a, quote, fanatical devotion to the house, although we don't know whether to believe him. She also knows she's got, a, like, a group of people. She's very social, always throwing parties. There's Commander Challenger, who's an old naval officer who's maybe in love with Nick. She's got a best friend called Freddie Rice, who is meant to be rather ethereal and very beautiful, um, has left her horrible husband. Um, she knows a guy called Jim Lazarus, who is a Jewish art dealer, and there's going to be some pretty nasty anti-Semitism in this novel. And then there is a cousin called Maggie Buckley. And then there's also um, some neighbours, some Australians who rent the cottage that's on the grounds of the house called Mr. and Mrs. Croft. So they, those are kind of the main characters. But Nick Buckley... I would argue there's some anti-Australianism in this novel as well. Yeah, colonials and Jews do not come out of this well, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> which is also something similar with the Sitterford mystery, which is also very anti-colonial, I would argue. It's and even that phrase, colonial. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's different. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so how do Poirot and Hastings get involved? They're having a little seaside holiday and Nick Buckley trips and falls in the gardens of the hotel and meets them. And it turns out that she thinks she's been stung by a wasp or a bee, but she's actually been shot at. And she kind of laughs it off and just says, oh, it's just so funny. Three times now I've been, you know, close to death. Ha ha. Because she's this bright young thing. But Poirot is immediately concerned and wants to kind of involve himself. So he goes up to the house to meet her and is, he doesn't feel that these are going to be coincidences or that these are coincidences. And he, he kind of looks down on her. At one point he says, quote, I am more intelligent than a petite comme ça. So he definitely thinks she's 
a pretty little girl who needs protecting. But it soon turns out that these death threats were not in vain and that, um, sorry, it soon turns out that actually these attempts at murder were not just coincidence or imagination or whatever it is, because Nick Buckley throws a dinner party and then all to see the fireworks at night. And her cousin, Maggie Buckley, who is staying with her, does get killed. And everyone thinks this is a failed attempt on Nick's life. And it just freaks her out. And Poirot and Hastings then have to investigate who killed Maggie Buckley. So it's that that's kind of the, the murder mystery that needs to be solved. Why, why is Maggie Buckley dead? Why was someone trying to kill Nick? Um, and what is going on? So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, and he, like, Pro is so belligerent towards Hastings in this novel. Like, he's always a little bit, like, shitty towards whoever he's dealing with, but he's, like, extra really shitty to Hastings in this one. I always feel that there's some kind of meta hatred going on, because I think Agatha Christie didn't like Hastings as a character. And then ships him off to Argentina and then brought him back because I think people, like the readers really missed him and they liked the double act. So I always feel that when Poirot is being such a snob and such a shit to Hastings and like calling him thick, that that's kind of like Agatha Christie is sort of like getting out her anger that she's got to write this character yet again. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I can see for her where she maybe is being pressured to do like the Dr. Watson formulaic thing um but it sucks because she writes he seems is such an endearing gentleman like to me i just i imagine this like kind of stout stocky like almost george costanza but nice guy <laughs> and i love him and <laughs> like he's, she's so abusive to him through poor well you know <laughs> like he straight up yeah. calls him an idiot at one point like He's no, like, oh, you imbecile, you know. Like, and I in guess- a way, it's beautiful, isn't it? Because Poirot's arrogance is ultimately, ultimately proven to not have good foundations because of having been taken in at some point in this novel. We'll get to it in the spoilerful bit, but he has no reason to be this arrogant in this particular novel by the end of it. So I think no, the last no. hours with his To be fair, though, he is just as abusive to himself when he makes a mistake or he misses a clue. Yeah, um, that's true. I feel like the dynamic, particularly between him and Hastings, is really interesting because Hastings really does seem to sort of laugh it off and allow him the space to be himself mm. and not and not really take it personally. And I, I'm not sure if that's Agatha Christie writing it to be well, he's just too stupid and it's going over his head and so he's not offended, or that he's just a true loyal friend and takes. Poirot as he is lumps him I think off. it's the latter and I think in a way as as the novels go on Poirot does the same for Hastings and by the time you get to the end and and especially Curtin I think there's a genuine fondness a genuine actual respect actually the other way from Poirot to Hastings as well but this is still very early isn't it in in their long multi-decade relationship um it is worth pointing out that Agatha Christie was a little bit ahead of her time. So in chapter seven, basically, there's a reference to um, a female aviator who went to Australia. This is an allusion to Amy Johnson, who made the first solo flight from England to Australia 
by a woman from May 1930 to from the 5th to the 24th of May 1930. I was amazed. I didn't realize people were flying from England to Australia already. Yeah, when yeah. I first read this, I had to like look up and remind myself about Amelia Earhart and when she went missing. Yeah, and because this is a big part of the story, folks. There's a an aviator called Michael Seaton who is flying solo around the world and then disappears very sadly, like Amelia Earhart. Um, but at the time, no one had flown around the world on their own, but this was actually achieved in 1933 by apparently a guy called Wiley Post, who I'd never heard about, but was the first guy to circumnavigate the globe solo. So, yeah, it's kind of amazing. This must have been really in the news. When was Amelia Earhart? What kind of period was she? This is my ignorance. I think 1929. Okay, so yeah, very much in the news. While I have to, I'd have to look it up. But yeah, I'm pretty sure 29, 28. Let me Google. Yeah, actually disappeared 1937. Interesting. So she would have been in her peak at this point, right? She would have been doing all of her. Oh, yeah, then that is really prophetic. Yeah. Absolutely. In 1932, the year this was released, she piloted a Lockheed Vega 5B, the first non-stop solo transatlantic flight. How cool is that? Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Now we know. So this is very much topical. It would have been very much in the news. And as usual, Agatha Christie, which is why we're doing the linear rereaders, she really does reflect the kind of obsessions of the time and also, for better or worse, the social um, mores of the time. It was very well received as a book. The Times Literary Supplement in April 1932 said, The actual solution is quite unusually ingenious, as well, up, as well up to the standard of Mrs. Christie's best stories. Everything is perfectly fair, and it is possible to guess the solution of the puzzle fairly early in the book, though it is certainly not easy. I don't feel it's that easy to guess the solution. Did you guess it the first time you read it? Oh, no. Um, and even this last time around, I had kind of forgotten. Because the first time I read this, I was doing like a whole plow through of all the pro ones. Mm -hmm. um, so they kind of got jumbled up in my brain. And I remember... I remembered like Mademoiselle Nick and all that. And I I was even trying to like see if I could remember or figure it out based on the actual clues this time. And I got close, but I didn't get it dead on, you know. Yeah, I'm the same. I certainly didn't get it the first time I read it, which was probably 20 years ago. And when I read it this time, it was like characters were coming back into my head, but I did not figure it out. I do think it's fair. Right. I do right. think it's possible to guess, especially when you read a lot of Christie. And I'll get into that in the solution section. There are tropes you can look for, which will help you guess it. But I yeah. think really ingenious. I think it's one of her best. And like I say, I think the fact that it's all done in 240 pages, I having reread it, I think I rate this higher than I probably would have said at the start. I think at the start of the reread, I probably wouldn't have picked this one out necessarily. But actually, I think it's really, really good, um, both for character, for plot, for economy, for the, the writing. I think it's really, really good. And then sadly, let's quickly do weather and how far this has dated. I think it is of its time, like I said. I think the aviation story is a really good one to have. But even at the time, it was almost immediately seen as anti-Semitic, which was really interesting to me. Part of what's been interesting going through this reread is seeing how far modern editions of her works kind of censor or take out things that were there in the original. But this is um, something that happened at the time. 
So it, before it was published in 1932, it was serialized in a US magazine called Liberty Magazine in 1931. And they took out ref- the really anti-Semitic references to Jim Lazarus. So they took out, quote, a Jew, of course, but a frightfully decent one. And also the description of him as the long-nosed Mr. Lazarus. But everything else was kept in. And it is, I mean, do you find it jarring reading it now? I mean, to me, it was quite disappointing. And it it still does jump off the page to me. Like, oh, God, here we go. We're going to have a Jewish character. He's going to be obsessed with money. And he's probably going to be, you know, slightly dishonest and run a dodgy art gallery in Mayfair. Fantastic. Here we go again. It's sickening, you know, like Agatha Christie's a really like brilliant writer and, uh, you know, a woman of substance when it comes to groundbreaking, you know, around the time of the suffrage movement and stuff. And I, I keep going back and forth. Like, I know we talked the last uh, one of these we did is like, is she anti-Semitic or is she writing anti-Semitic characters? Because that's who she's around in that time. I think it's a mix of both, honestly. And I think you can definitely find people that she writes as being anti-Semitic or racist in other ways. But I think she also is herself very casually anti-Semitic. It's just the way, because she's not putting it in the words of a different character and then point and then sort of commenting on it in her third person narrative. This really is coming, the choice again and again to make Jewish characters money obsessed, plutocratic, dishonest, and then to comment on their physical appearance. I mean, the the worst one is Lord Edgware dies, which we're shortly, you know, yeah, th- thankfully here it's just the one character, but it's it's really unpleasant. And the fact that even at the time they thought they had to soften it for an American audience tells you something. And it's just horrible because it's 1932. This is, you know, a woman who is by far better traveled than the average English person. You know, she's been to the Middle East. She's done a literal round the world trip with her first husband and she's very well informed she knows what's going on in germany and you just think i always find this is the best evidence for you know when people in england tend to be very self-congratulatory about world war ii and endless you know history docs on tv and like the kind of the subtext is oh those awful germans it would never have happened here and i think well just look at look at the times look at what was the best-selling novels of the time and the Mm -hmm. fact that casual anti-semitism was in there so I kind of find that it was kind of in the background in the air as a kind of enabling characteristic of horrible stuff to happen in Europe. And I have no illusions that were the circumstances correct, it couldn't have happened in England. Yeah, and because think, how, how many years before Germany annexed Poland is this? Just a few years, right? Like Yeah, I mean, this is basically 1932. You're on the verge of Hitler becoming um, the president, or sorry, the chancellor of Germany, chancellor, you yeah. know, and, and taking over. So... This is, you know, this is when the Nazis are absolutely on the rise. And yeah, it's that. So I kind of, I, I've taken the attitude on reading this that it's very unpleasant to read. And I would understand very much if Jewish people would object to having that kind of language in these books. But I do think it's important to keep it in and have like explanatory notes in the text to say, like, if you if you pretend it wasn't there, then you destroy in a way our understanding of history. Because this, the fact that it was so prevalent in a multi-million, you know, hundreds of mm-hmm. thousands of copies selling and what also amazes me is that they they still keep it in like they still keep it in now so um it is yeah, shocking. Uh, there's a lot of debate um like on that topic we're doing the merchant of venice this season for 
the company that I work with, Shakespeare in the Vines, and they uh, are, I'm not familiar with the work, but they keep telling me about, like, it's very anti-Semitic and problematic, and there's a lot of debate over whether we should censor it or not, and how we should censor it. I'm not sure you can perform it if you, if you, I mean, like, the anti-Semitic. That's what I'm saying, but I I kind of agree with you, like, we shouldn't be afraid to tell difficult stories. Like I hate yeah. to, I hate to think of a world where we stop telling stories just because they're hard to tell, and we're and this afraid. Is, this is what art is for, right? I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it's kind of funny. We're going to see um, the film director Hilario del Toro um, next week at the BFI because I guess he's doing the awards season for his new film Pinocchio, and his version of Pinocchio is set in Mussolini's. Italy, and in fact, Mussolini is character, so you see a lot of fascists in it and a lot of unpleasant stuff. And the way he described it when he introduced the movie at the film festival was, this is not a film for children, but you for sure can watch it with children if you as parents are willing to talk to those children afterwards about what it contained. And I kind of feel the same with like things like Parallel and House and Merchant of Venice, all these things that were written in a different time is, of course we should show them, but we should show them and talk about them. And talk about right. them with context and then it it becomes valuable right um anyway yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah. yeah i mean i'm not a part of that community and i don't want to like speak on behalf of mm. a marginalized community but i've just always been of a mind where we shouldn't sweep it under the rug we should confront that this is human history and in an yeah. effort to avoid it in the future you know like don't paint it in a good light don't excuse it but acknowledge that it happened and yeah. Absolutely. There, but for the grace. And steer clear, you know, in the future. Completely agree. Anyway, I mean, I don't want to sort of, in in a way, it's a shame because it's it's a blight on a book that otherwise is so compelling, so fascinating. Um, I love the character of Nick Buckley. I think she's really vital. And Freddie Rice. There's a lot of cocaine in this one again, isn't there? (laughs) Oh, my God. It feels like everyone was high during this period of history. Like, there's a lot of, like... I think all of her books need like that extended like parental <laughs> advisory warning, you know. I know. <laughs> Especially well, you know what's so, what's so funny is uh I'm I'm watching the new season of Jack Ryan on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime and the warning comes up, you know, uh, alcohol use, cigarette smoking, some sexual content. On this one episode it's like warning this program contains product placement. <laughs> never seen that before i'm like that is a new one I they should like, just have a generic why, warning why is that warning. triggering this 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 work of art portrays life life is complex right. that's, Get over that's it. what my husband said it's like warning life life in progress life in progress be warned <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. let's get to the adaptation so you said you'd listen to the radio play was it any good oh yeah they're great so it's a whole series that they did of um i think all of her books on the bbc um in the 50s oh okay don Moffat plays hercule perot throughout all of them um but they have i think the only one that's not a radio play is endless night mm. Um, that one, I think, is just an audiobook, but you can find them on Edible. And they're great. They have all this jazz music, like, 
thrown in, you know, where a commercial break would have been, but they all, they take out the commercial part. Mm. Um, and it's all characterized and there's sound effects and they're very great production value. Um, and they're, they're not a bridge. They're the full story. Um, I love it. I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds really great. Yeah, they just remove the narration part of it and just have the characters doing the dialogue. But then, you know, you hear the sound effects and things. So, um, and I guess Christine must work well for that because she kind of wrote, didn't she? She wrote in heavy dialogue. And if you read her autobiography, she says that the way she would write once she'd um, kind of sketched out the plot in a very detailed way about what needed to happen in which chapter is that she would do the voices aloud. So she would speak out the dialogue until she liked it and then she would write it down. So it doesn't surprise me. There's also a television adaptation in 1990, which was part of the British ITV Agatha Christie series. It comes early, actually. It was in the second series. It was the first full-length novel they adapted. So I don't know why they chose that one, but um, it was a good one to do. It is David Suchet as Poirot. Um, and Polly Walker plays Nick Buckley. So if anyone is a fan of Polly Walker, um, it's very faithful to the novel. And yeah, I think it's it's really, really interesting to watch. They don't have um, Colonel Weston in it, but they do have Miss Lemon, who's the PA, I guess, of Poirot and Hastings. And it was filmed in Devon, which is very near the hometown of Torquay, where Agatha Christie grew up. So... Um, you get that kind of real Agatha Christie feeling from it. But I think it's a really good adaptation. Some of these are terrible, um, but this one is really worth watching. That said, it's a very short novel. You can probably just read it in the time it takes you to watch the adaptation. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like there's a few good options there. And if you yeah, have... I think about adapting her stuff into like a show or a film. They're, they're pretty short. So I've noticed like with Death on the Nile, you know, they took some liberties to make it mm. a little bit lengthier. Um, Absolutely. So we're going to leave you there, listener, with a spoiler-free part of this episode. We hope you've um, maybe been tempted to read Peril at End House. It is a really quick, breezy, fun, intricate, truly cool puzzle. Um, we're going to come back in next time for a mini pod on Lord Edgeware Dies, which, oh, that's that's a dark and twisted and I think really good but problematic novel. And then the one after that is Murder on the Orient Express, where hopefully the whole crew, Hannah, myself, Xander, will be on. So that should be fun. But in the meantime, we hope you have a lovely weekend and thanks for listening. Stay tuned after the end credits music for the spoiler fills discussion of the book. Okay, so Hannah, now we can talk about the ending um, and the fact that it's Nick Buckley. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So that was the one thing that I re- like re-listening to the radio play. I'm trying to figure out, you know, trying to remember who did it. And I knew that there was something up with Nick, but mm. and I knew, OK, I, and I knew that there was like they fake her death. I remembered that, but I still had it in my head that it was like Freddie Rice. Mm. at the end of the day and then when it came you know the seance happens and it all comes on i'm like oh right like the maggie thing yeah the thing about agatha christie is once you read enough of them and if you read them as i am like in close like you're just reading a lot 
you realize that most of the time her plots are driven by the want of money and jealousy. So as soon as you realize that Nick Buckley is mad about the house and has no cash, and Charles Weiss gives us that early thing that she's obsessed with the house, that we should kind of figure out she's involved. Although I always find it weird in Agatha Christie when the murderers try and involve Poirot. It's like, don't you realize he's a world-famous detective? Why would you deliberately... I mean, that's just dumb. Um. <laughs> yeah, why would you try to outsmart him? It's, yeah, it's very silly to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a little over the top, isn't it? Like the picture falling and all this. Like, Yeah, exactly. It's like, it is like a teenage girl planning some sort of fake murder attempt, right? Like it's so much. One thing that I wonder about is like, and I don't know if this is just um, an oversight on Christie's part or not, but the thing with the hole in the hat, I'm like, how, how exactly did she do that then? Yeah, well, because maybe if she did it at close range, it would have like a burn mark in it, right? Yeah, or maybe through something, maybe like through a muffler to get the burn mark, as we'll discover later. The other big hint I guess we should get is people who read a lot of Agatha Christie and names matter, and especially when you have names that are gender ambiguous. Like, is what's Nick's real name? Like, a lot of plots hinge on realizing that someone's nickname is not their real name and vice versa. And we do get the clue that Magdala is this very unusual family name and that young Nick was named after old Nick, the granddad. So to me, that's the other big clue. But the whole thing with the watches and the cocaine always struck me as really dumb. Yeah. Well, and then that's another problematic thing that she does. I know we talked last time of... She like wrap these things up with the way out, you know. <laughs> it's like mm. there's a big yeah. part of me that's like, yeah, don't strain the taxpayer. But then there's another part of me that's like, we shouldn't encourage self harm at all. Yeah, although it is it is interesting actually that maybe because of modern audiences in the well, not so modern now in the 1990 adaptation, the one change they make from the book is. Um, Commander Challenger is arrested rather than being allowed to escape, which is quite interesting. Like, I think there's probably a more modern or contemporary sense of justice being served in that respect. Oh, because uh, he's a cocaine dealer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although I don't need to see another seance or fake death by Poirot. I, I think that got a bit hackneyed because, like, literally the Citiford mystery has almost the same resolutions, like, has a fake seance. And I just feel like at this point... She obviously someone had done a seance and she was taken with it as a plot point, but we need we don't need any more of those, I feel, for a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh it's it's funny though how many of her stories do end with justice being taken, you know, judge, jury, and executioner sometimes by a royal yeah, supposed to be a real man, you know? Yeah. And I um, think we should um we should really get into that in Murder on the Orient Express. And particularly with the adaptations, because I always find with the adaptations, they try and give Poirot this like massive, like, you know, fit of conscience about whether he should allow something. Anyway, I, let's leave it. So I'll cut this out. But I think they always try and make it like Poirot struggles with whether he should let them get away with it. And actually, when you read the book, it's literally he figures it out. The book ends like two sentences later. Like right. he's never in any doubt about what to do. And I think Agatha no. Christie is also never in any doubt. I think Agatha Christie believes in capital punishment, believes murderers can die. And if she can get the murderers to just kill themselves, it's much neater and more efficient for everyone involved. <laughs> I think she's absolutely ruthless when it comes to sort of evil and murderers. And well, I think there's I mean. no... Like, but we should probably have this debate kind of at the end of the reread about, you know, themes in Agatha Christie and what is justice, because she definitely yeah. 
he definitely does believe in you know sensible people taking yeah. justice into their own hand and she a lot of the times she allows bad characters to take quote unquote the easy way out and kill each other and we're going to we're going to come up with a couple of interesting examples soon not least death on the nile right where you well, get a strong sense that Poirot like as well like yeah exactly that, that whole novel is just a, such a departure from her normal stuff it's it's i think it is my favorite one because it's just so different and it's really dark yeah i'm really looking forward to reading it because i can't i remember very little anything else you want to tell the listener about parallel end house that we haven't covered or um other than encouraging them to read it although you'd hope if they're in this section they've already read it so (laughs) correct yeah uh well i was gonna ask you (laughs) on this last time around Was I the only one that was like envisioning sort of a very miniature casterly rock when they start describing the house being out on the like the end of a jetty, like and this no, very like miniaturized sort of? I mean, I've never been to England, so the oh, only we should talk about the Australians quickly. Like, we should talk about oh the Australians God, yeah. who forged the will. That's so and well, they're not Australians, really, are they? So I guess it's not anti-Australian. Yeah. They're fake Australians, so it's not colonial. But how dumb are they too? The idea that oh, we we said we'd post the will, and oh, it just magically turned up at the solicitor because she's been killed. I mean, like people are so dumb. Well, and he get like Perot spots it right away. He's like, don't you think they're laying it on a bit too thick with like the cooey thing? And I'm like, yeah. literally, have I never heard of that? So. <laughs> and that's straight out of uh, Citifed Mystery as well, like the fake colonials. So that's a bit lazy in the writing. It's like they're kind of like, I guess, uh, stereotyping the Australians mm-hmm. in their portrayal of Australians. And he calls it right away, you know. Yeah, exactly. Which is hilarious. So very, well. you get your eye on them. Attuned. The idea that he's that attuned to how different people actually truly would uh, speak as opposed to um, authentically. Yeah, but then also it's like that line of like, don't you think they're laying it on a bit too thick? And it's and he like says why, and it's like, well, some stereotypes are stereotypes because people really do behave that way. For a reason, exactly. Some so are you being like prejudiced? You know, (laughs) it's it's interesting. I'm I'm not sure what to make of it still, but but you do get told very early by Pro to keep your eye on them. That's true. Like, I mean, I think that's what people say, don't they? This is a novel that is intricate and very few people would figure it out, but it does play fair. When you look back on it, all the clues are given to you. So mm-hmm. that to me is the, the best kind of murder mystery. Anyway, this was lovely, Hannah. Lovely to talk to you about Parallel and House. I think it's a, a really lovely novel. Um, and we are in the 1930s. We're in the peak decade for some of the best and we're about to get into some really crack- really cracking ones. So thank you there for joining thing though that happens in this book and that's the fact that he even like goes to a fireworks show with the chick he knows has been shot at he knows there's a gun involved (laughs) and he doesn't have any issue with like let's go see some fireworks that's the one thing but he beats himself up about it afterwards doesn't he like he's he really hates himself that he allowed you know he wasn't able to prevent it so um at least there's some self-awareness and humility yeah it's just i think that it's almost a reflection of how agatha christie sees herself and i Mm. admire her for that. yeah she is a strong woman ahead of her time 
absolutely ahead of her time. And I love that. I love that she was this publishing powerhouse by this point and that she was having these incredibly well-funded serializations in the US. And to me, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal story. It really is. She's kind of so... She's a weird paradox because she's so of her time, you know, the obsession with cocaine and the anti-Semitism right. and, re- and aviation. She so reflects her time, but she also completely defies her times with her business sense and her ability to earn a living from her writing. I so. also find it fascinating how little of her novels, the solution does not rely on forensics. At all. In fact, she def- she she At defines all. herself as not doing the Sherlock Holmes. You have to know about this brand of pipe cleaner. She mocks it, right? In Murder on the Links, she mocks the idea that there was this one time when I did find a clue. Like she always goes on about it. Like she says yeah. that Poirot is not a blunt hound. He isn't that kind of. And in that way, Benoit Blanc is in the Poirot tradition because he is also just about thinking logically. Why was this done? What was the motive? And I, that's why I think I'm drawn to both of them because it's not the CSI approach to crime solving. So it's it's much more yeah, cerebral, which I appreciate. Yeah, it's the psychological aspect yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. And the motive with Agatha no, Christie, it's always money or sex or money and sex. So maybe once you figure that out. <laughs> it would be an interesting discussion, I think, to have of co- comparing and contrasting Poirot to Marple mm, and definitely. and it juxtaposed to like her as the author which is which is the stronger and which like does Miss Marple's character reveal some internalized misogyny that Christie's struggling with like definitely, definitely you know things like that yeah, let's definitely do that. Let's do some thematic ones at the end of this. That'll be really fun. Um, all right, my lovely, I'm going to go. But this okay, was well, really fun. And yeah, take care you. of yourself. Philip, I said hi. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>